So this evening I wanted to give you a long-range view of the practice so that you can see where eventually the practice is headed. In, in our times here together, we get kind of a pixelated view. You know, we're uh, helping you to see moment to moment what's going on and how to be able to handle that with a kind of balance. So this talk is about the sure heart's release, that long-range view that we can have, even if we can't even imagine it now. What did the Buddha have in mind when he offered this uh, practice, this way of living to the beings in his time and for all time? So through our practice, we begin to understand, as many of you know, who have been on the path for a while, you understand more than you've understood before. You know more profoundly what it means when we say the impersonal nature of the body and mind process, because you actually can experience how it's not self. Maybe not all the time, but you get glimpses of that. We learn through our practice to bring a balanced and spacious connection, caring awareness to whatever experience that we're having in the body, in the mind. We learn that the mind and heart can unfold where it's closed in upon itself. It doesn't, uh, we see places where there are karmic knots and where it's kind of all folded in and we actually experience how it opens up and something comes out of that, what we thought was a painful experience, something very beautiful can come out of that. What is revealed is something that has long been unrealized, that is actually relieving to us. It gives us more understanding about our lives and the lives of others. So we begin to experience the true nature of life in a moment-to-moment -moment way, not through our uh, intellectual understanding, but through our experiential understanding. We learn to understand that the gentle, persevering energy and effort that we put forth brings about courage and compassion. We need to keep facing what needs to be faced in order to develop that courage, in order to really open our hearts with compassion. We can't just say we're going to do it and then do it. We need to just keep touching that place over and over again. We don't give up so easily. Just because it's hard once, we don't say, I'm not going to try it again. We keep going on with our practice, even when it's hard to bear. So when this happens, the path to liberation can more easily be seen. When we've got these little experiential glimpses, but they add up, quite a few of them over the years, and we begin to trust that they're going to continue to open in that way. So we see the path more easily ahead. Maybe it's just a little bit ahead, but we see that we can do it, and we see the far-ranging possibilities. We see with right view that what is unwholesome, 
what is unskillful and leads to suffering and pain for ourselves and others, this is what we need to not feed, what we need to relinquish. Each mindful moment that we bring to unwholesome or unskillful mind states, when mindfulness is brought to them, they are weakened. They may not necessarily be uprooted, that can take place uh, eventually. But each time mindfulness is brought to unwholesome mind states, they're not nurtured, they're not fed, and they're weakened. We know that we can bring mindfulness to wholesome mind states. Wholesome means what leads to peace, what leads to harmony, what leads to a deeper kind of happiness and the end of suffering for ourselves and others. And when we nurture these mind states by doing our practices like our Brahma-Vihara practices, metta, compassion, um, equanimity, sympathetic joy, those are the four Brahma-Viharas. When we do those on purpose, they're nurtured. And when we are mindful of those mind states, when they come up spontaneously, they're also nurtured, they're strengthened. So with these two as a basis, developing what is wholesome, letting go of what is unwholesome, then wisdom can arise. And there are passages in the Buddha's teaching where he says, when we look at the path, it's really very simple. It's about three things. It's about developing what is wholesome, letting go of what is unwholesome, and from that as a platform, wisdom naturally arises. So for most of us, this happens very gradually in, in ever-deepening ways. Sometimes we can't even, we don't even know that it's naturally happening, but it is. And in time we learn that we can rely on this inner wisdom that grows, this kind of right view that grows of life, and really depend on that to come up spontaneously. And not that we, we have to mull it over and know what's, what's good to do, what's not good to do, but it just comes very intuitively. So that no matter what stones are thrown into the pond of our lives, into the momentary situation that's happening, even though they're big boulders that are thrown in from conditions, causes and conditions from the from karmic inside, from outside conditions, then we, we know that eventually it will go back to some stillness. So in that stillness we can see some clarity and we know what to do. So the ripples of life come, the tsunamis come, the waves come for confusion, for doubt and all that. But if we just wait a while, we know that this too will pass and we'll have clarity and wisdom in time and more and more of that in deeper ways. We know that when it passes, we can begin again. We don't have to mull over what just happened. We just pick up and begin again. So in this uh, looking at the long-range view, I want to talk about how our practice produces refinements of happiness, peace, 
and the refinements of letting go that we may not realize just because we're doing our practice and going on in our day-to-day -day life, we may not realize how powerful those practices that we bring home with us are making a difference in our life, in our karmic stream, and in our benefit to others. So by now, I, I hope that you've realized, um, and if you haven't, you will, being on this path, that it's not really a path of attaining anything, of getting anything, even getting wisdom. That, that is all sort of gained in its own way by letting go. Experientially, it is a path of letting go. Experientially, it's a path of purification. It's purifying the heart of three basic things, greed, hatred, and delusion. And sometimes, you know, that delusion is really in two parts, delusion and ignorance, which Steve explained the other evening. It's a path with immediate and far-reaching benefits because, as I will explain in different parts of the path, we realize in the moment how beautiful it is to our own hearts and to the hearts of others. We feel the benefit. And we see that when that becomes the default setting of, of the mind so that it plays out in our lives over and over again, that uh, that becomes so spontaneous and the long-range view we can have trust in, that it will always be that way for most of the time and in deeper and deeper ways. Through, through time we experience that harmful tendency weakens and they die, tendencies weaken and they die out eventually. They weaken so much that we don't see them in everyday uh, life, the acting out of ill will or greed or delusion. We may have the tendency for it to come when conditions are just right, but even when the tendency comes, we see, we understand with wisdom, with right view, this is not the right thing to say or to do. And so it isn't kind of brought out on that level of, of more karmic repercussions. When we act it out, when we say it, there is more karmic repercussion there. But when it's just thought about in the mind, when the tendency comes up, it doesn't have as much karmic repercussion, but it still does. And at least it isn't so a strong a karmic repercussion. So we also realize that goodwill, or the natural tendency towards harmony, arises spontaneously. It isn't that Again, we have to think about, should I do this or not? It, it just naturally comes out. We know it's going to benefit. We know what brings happiness and peace. And so if we can do it, then we do it. Or we say it, if conditions are uh, in that way. So this has a great effect, even though it's gradual, on our sense of deepening trust in ourselves and the spontaneous understanding, the deeper understandings that come. Of course, it has an effect on those around us. Um, Sogyal Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan teachers of our time, says that the practice of mindfulness unveils and reveals your essential good heart. 
because it dissolves and removes the harm in you. Only when you have removed the harm in yourself do you become useful to others. So when I first started practicing, like all of you, um, I had this idea that what I wanted to find was some, some kind of peace in my life, some kind of place where I could go back to that I could rely on, that I could, maybe I could just sit down once in a while and feel calm and have a lessened degree of anxiety or know the right thing to do spontaneously, not be so confused. Um, of course, I really, really wanted that because at the time I was a single parent and, and my kids were all small, like six or five and under. It was kind of a hell realm when I <laughs> Just to be truthful, and, and now, you know, I have four children, all grown, and, and they're all wonderful. And um, they have their ups and downs, and they have their share of dukkha, and um, all beings have their own journey. I can rest in that most of the time and not feel so responsible. Anyway, I had this idea that where is the place, where is the way? I could just have some calm, I could have some little happiness, I could know what to do, you know, when things are so hard and, and confusing. And so I, um, I had my three little kids with me at the time, and I had just arrived from uh, living in the Philippines where I was born. And I was raised in America, but I went back there and I had the children. And then I came back with them as a single parent, long story short. <laughs> a lot of dukkha in between, though. Um, you can probably imagine. So we, we were on our way home from um, San Francisco and we're headed on, down the coast. And I went to, I just turned in the, at this, University of California in Santa Cruz, and they were having a fair, kind of one of those spiritual fairs in the 70s. Some of you are in that age group that know what that means, you know. And um, so I walked into this cavernous gymnasium, and all along, it was huge, and all along the sides were these booths of what people were presenting, all different kinds of spiritual ways of practicing and there was drumming and there was incense burning and there were hippie clothes and things like that. And so the kids were hungry but I went in anyway and they were all pulling on me and, and so I, I had a short time and I, I was just looking around saying, okay, where am I going to go? And down at the end of the um, cavernous gymnasium was one sign that caught my eye, and all it said was, silent retreat. <laughs> <laughs> now, I love drumming. I love that rhythmic drumming and all of that, and, and, I, and I love sensuous things like incense and all that. But I went right for that, and I, I honestly, I didn't go anywhere else. I just went boom. And then I found out about a silent retreat, a weekend retreat, and I signed up right then and there. No, didn't even think about it. 
And they were so kind that they said, um, we'll find a way to, I said, I have three children, I'm not sure, you know, and they said, we'll find a way to take care of your children. And I immediately trusted them. You know, it was one of those things that I just felt intuitively, I didn't know them, but they seemed like really kind people. And they were uh, representing this path of practice and um, so I went to that retreat. And that was the beginning of my practice. And it was just very intuitive. And that's where I, I met my first teacher, Manindraji. Not at that retreat, but they were bringing this group, uh, including one of our senior colleagues, Joseph Goldstein, was bringing um, Manindraji to America for the first time. And he was going to be coming in a few months and doing a month long. So I, um, I did that weekend retreat and immediately I signed up for the month long. I mean, I must have been crazy, <laughs> but I did. I couldn't attend the whole thing, but I did as much as I could. And I went in and out of the retreat and they were very, very uh, helpful to me. Anyway, that's another story. But when I uh, first met Manindra, he made it clear to me that the aspirations, the things I wanted out of life, were indeed possible through that path of practice. That I wanted some calm, I wanted some way to just, can I just have a little bit of happiness instead of working my butt off, you know? And um, he said, yeah, that's all possible. Calm. And I said, I just want to be able to concentrate my mind even a little bit instead of feeling so dispersed. And he said, it's all, all possible, but that isn't the end goal of the Buddha's teaching. That's part of the goal, but it's not the whole thing. And if you, you'll cut yourself short if you don't know what the, the total teachings are and the end goal of the, the Buddha is. And he said that the, the end of the goal, the end of the path is to realize this unconditional peace and happiness. It's not a peace and happiness that depends on conditions being right, on everything being quiet, on the right people being there, saying just the right thing, everybody we love, having bliss and happiness, you know, spontaneously arise around us and in us. That's possible, but he said the goal of the Buddhist teaching is to have an unconditional peace and happiness. That no matter what happens around us, even if we're facing the greatest dukkha in the world, that we still can feel peace and happiness in our hearts. It doesn't have to depend on things being perfect, because they aren't, you know. And so how do we, how do we handle this that we're in? That made a lot of sense to me. That, I, you know, it wasn't about being peaceful when I could make control everything and say that everybody has to be smiling around me in order for me to be happy. But even when people weren't smiling around me, even when the kids were screaming, or I wanted to be able to touch into my own heart and feel that peace and, and that okayness with how it is. I may not be joyful, but I could have this equanimity. This is the way it is, and accept things as they are. So the Buddha talked about this unshakable deliverance of mind, 
this sure heart's release, the very reason for these teachings and the very reason why that we don't cut you short on the teachings of dukkha. Because it's what we're facing every day. And duh, are we learning how to face it, you know? <laughs> we're not just coming here playing beautiful music for you. Um, so we want all of us to learn how to face things as they are, not as we think we, they should be. There's plenty of that out there that we can go to. So the Buddha said in this simile of the heartwood in the Majjhima Nikaya, so he said, this, so this life, he was talking to the Brahmins, this life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit or the attainment of virtue for its benefit or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind. That is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. In another passage similar, he says, the purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for concentration, but the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. So the release the Buddha is talking about is the complete relinquishing of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, the purification completely of this in one's heart, in one's mind stream, total liberation. And we've known people who have come or are very close to this and really feel that they live perfectly well in their lives and without or, or with um, a deeper purification of greed and hatred and delusion. Their minds are, are full of love and wisdom. When one, uh, a person asked Deepama, one of our teachers one time, what's in your mind? And she said something like, just love and wisdom. So we don't have to have this strong, like, forceful energy to be in life. When we need it, we can put it forth. I mean, I've, I'm a pretty soft person, but you can ask Steve. <laughs> when I, when something is like past my boundary, I say, that's it, that's enough, and I am really clear. So that's not out of the question when a person has a pure heart. I don't have a pure heart. It's like Manindra says, my path is not yet finished. <laughs> he said that for himself. Um, but I can say that, you know, I just see a lot less of holding on, a lot less of um, ill will in the mind now than there was uh, 20 years ago and more clarity. So Manindra used to say that there are three areas of life we can bring mindful attention to, to support the long-range goal of complete liberation. And he used the framework of the three pillars of the Dharma. That's what he put it in. So I'm going to lay those out to you this evening. 
this is following this can be a way of following the sure heart's release. So this is not just about going to retreats. This is about living a life of Dharma. When we look at these three pillars and how we are practicing them in our lives. Because these three pillars are all mindfulness practices. So the three pillars are dana or generosity, sila, living a life of harmony, and bhavana, developing the mind through concentration and wisdom. So each of these three parts I'll lay out. The first is dana. It's the mindful practice of the action of giving from the inner attitude of generosity. So there's two parts to it. Dana means the action of giving, but it really needs to come from the inner attitude of generosity. So dana just doesn't mean generosity. It means the actual acting out of it. And sila, as I mentioned, is the practice of refraining from harm, living in harmony through our careful speech and behavior. So sila has to do with speech and behavior, you know, those connections that we have in the relative world. And then the last uh, part, the last pillar is bhavana. And that comes in two parts. So bhavana means bringing forth, cultivating, or training the mind in two ways. Training the mind in concentration. Many of you have practiced concentration, just being with the breath in, in this practice. Um, there are other practices of concentration, metta, also what we do, compassion in the afternoon. Um, it's cultivating, it's training the mind in concentration, calm, tranquility. That's the first part. And the second part is the development of wisdom through vipassana. So concentration practices and vipassana practices are two different things in, in this particular practice. So it's a simplicity of giving careful attention and establishing thre- Uh, strength in all of these areas, all of these mindful trainings, not just being on retreat and doing, you know, the practices of concentration as we're doing in metta and vipassana. The vipassana practice is what we offer you in the morning. These are reliable foundations for our life, for the long-range liberation. And foundations for refuge in our day-to-day life. So it's easy to see that the trainings of dana and sila, giving and non-harming, that it promotes a real open-hearted connection. Um, It connects us with our own hearts and connects us with others. And that uh, that interconnectedness is really, really important in our lives. It gives us the kind of that, that Indra's net in a way to be, to feel held in, to feel that it's kind of a net of safety for us when we have that loving connection of non-harming, of connecting with others through giving of ourselves. We have a deep sense of well-being within ourselves and we give that to others. 
it makes these two trainings, the sila, uh, the dana and the sila, the giving and the non-harming, make it easier for bhavana to be developed. It makes it easier for calm and concentration to be developed. It's easy to understand that because when we have this deep sense of non-harming and this connection through giving, we don't feel plagued by feeling separate from one another. We don't feel plagued by unworthiness or by a resentment or by blame or by guilt because we're doing, we know we're doing the best we can in our lives to connect with others in a non-harming way. So it's important to put energy in all of these. One is not really more important than the other. This is from the Tibetan um, heart essence of the great perfection. One of the Zen teachers, but I, I didn't come across that person's name. It wasn't given. So this uh, teacher says, now in our day-to-day -day lives, we know that the more stable, calm, and contented our mind is, the more feelings and experiences of happiness we will derive from it. The more undisciplined, untrained, and negative our mind is, the more we suffer mentally and physically as well. So we can see only too well that a disciplined and contented mind is the source of happiness. Many times the Buddha offered the teachings even to those who were highly developed in their practice. He always started out with dana, sila, and then went to bhavana. So even when Steve and I have gone to retreats where in Burma where there were many heads of monasteries there, you know, that were yogis, um, along with others who weren't heads of monasteries. Um, still, the teachings that would be given began with uh, dana, began with generosity, over and over again, to help us remember that these are important, are in our lives, in our lives. And sila, being uh, acting and speaking with non-harm. And then it would go on to the deeper understandings in bhavana, in cultivating the heart and the mind. So first, dana, just as the Buddha started with dana, so uh, I will start with dana. Dana has two aims. I'm just making this um, kind of in a capsule. Dana has two aims. The first aim is to benefit others, of course. It's out of compassion we give, we benefit others. Also out of right view we give, we benefit others. Because out of right view, we benefit ourselves. You know, what goes around comes around. The, the seeds that we plant in our own heart out of giving are wonderful seeds that we uh, we kind of rest in when we feel a, a heart in ourselves of giving, we feel more restful inside. So the first aim to help others, uh, we give of ourselves, our time, our energy, our kindness, our material resources, because it relieves others of their suffering in the moment, it relieves them, 
or we can see like we help our children, we help our friends because it may relieve them of some suffering they may have in the future. It may give them a sense of relief now because they don't have to worry about the future. It inspires in them a sense of worthiness. This is a gift we give to others. We don't think about this often, but when we give to someone, I've just noticed more and more, if I give a gift to someone, they come back to me, not everybody, but sometimes, in some way they say, it's really, it's been a real gift that you gave me this. It could be just something really small, you know, like a little tiny card or um, a flower from my garden when I, when I bring it to somebody. So they feel worthy. And it's, a, it's not just what you give them materially, but it's the sense of worthiness that you give them that's so important that you say to them, I recognize your beauty, and um, I just want to honor that by my time here, or my being able to listen, or whatever it is. It doesn't have to be something material that we give. So it gives them, from that sense of worthiness, it gives them a sense of inner richness. We feel a sense of inner richness because we can give, of course. But it also gives them a sense of inner richness because of the worthiness that they feel, of kind of, they feel respected and honored by us. It makes them feel loved, not just to know it like, okay, I'm loved, you know, kind of reason it out. But those little moments are, are really, really important. Just in our uh, compassion practice, I don't know if it's the appropriate thing for you to say, but when I say, I really care about your pain, that's something that, come, that can come easily in, in my conversation to people. That's, that, the, that grouping of words can really mean something to someone, you know, that you care about their pain or you care about them in general. So here on retreat, you know, just to remember the, the support that we've been given to just be here. Um, a lot of things like this, you know, that go on in the world cost a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred dollars a day just to come to something like this. I mean, I, I even know of things, of course, we live on Maui that cost $1,000 a day to go see, you know, some of these um, great, wonderful healers in the world. <laughs> it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, so, but here, you know, there's been so much support. A lot of what you don't see, what's in the background, came from all volunteers. And, and some of the people are here, just giving their time, giving their, their intelligence, their know-how to register people, to know what to do when something comes up that is out of the ordinary. Um, their, you know, the banking that has to be done, all the um, 
paperwork that you have gotten and we have gotten, the managing here, all is done on a giving basis, setting up of the speaker system, the beautiful flowers that are here all around for our enjoyment, um, all of it and, and more, you know, setting up, taking home, driving us here, uh, has come from your generosity. A lot of it, um, even from your registration here, the generosity of getting us here. I mean, you know, that was included in your registration, but it needed to get us here. That, that came from what you gave in your registration. So there's so much support all around us that we can acknowledge um, and that inspires gratitude within us. And I'm just, it's so um, sometimes unbelievable, you know, that I can come here and everybody's so generous having everything in place and doing the best they can to keep it together for all of us. It's very inspiring. So we give to others. You all have given and over the years, you've given so much to, to us that Stephen and I are so thankful for. It helps us to keep going. So our never-ending gratitude for that. The second aim, the first aim is to help others. The second aim is to help ourselves. One time, a long time ago, Manindra said, um, you know, generosity you, you know that you're benefiting others, but do you want to understand with deeper wisdom what that generosity means? And of course I said yes. So he said, generosity means that you're helping yourself as well. Because what you're doing is you're putting in your mind stream that ability to let go, that ability to um, uh, helping others is that's good, really, wonderful karma, and to let go, to be able to let go over and over again, that is helping yourself to no end. You can't even imagine how much that's helping yourself to when, you know, just giving of your time, your energy, your material resources, how much that makes it easier for you to let go in any moment. Let go of the pain you've been holding on to, to the confusion. Uh, all of that is being helped by your letting go in, in generosity. We support ourselves by developing the wholesome states of loving kindness. Every moment of, of giving includes some loving kindness, includes some compassion in some way, and includes some equanimity. Because in order to let go of what is our resource, we need equanimity. We need to be able to say, you know, it's really not ours. <laughs> it really just comes and goes. That comes with the understanding of, uh, of that, that kind of openness of equanimity. And there's joy when we let go. There's immediate happiness in the moment of giving if you really take a look at it, if you're not, um, if you do feel happy. I know sometimes it's hard to let go, but there is that happiness 
and we can realize it in the moment of giving. Beforehand, even, when you have the intention to let go, how many times, just think of in the past when you thought of, what gift shall I give to someone? And it made you happy just to think of, what shall I give, you know? And uh, it brings happiness even before it happens. And when you think of the past, um, that, that's the past when you think of, uh, in the past, what you gave. And then in the moment, even thinking of the past, it makes you happy to think of the past and what you gave. Just little things even. Sometimes I remember the, um, I didn't have much at the time when I first began practicing. And so I remember that I gave Seda Upandita, you, you can give their requisites, you know, what they need. And part of what they need is what to keep them warm. And I gave them a pair of brown socks. It was, and I, when I offered to him, I offered to him with two hands, because what you off, when you offer in Burma, you offer wholeheartedly. And you try to offer in person, because it has a more karmic um, power in that way, because you're right there with the person. So offered him, and it does have a lot of karmic power because I remember the happiness on his face just with those brown socks, you know? And it was so simple because he knew I was just giving wholeheartedly and I really wanted his feet to be warm. <laughs> we were in a cold place. Well, it was cold in that day in, in a foreign country. So if beings knew, as I know, the results of sharing gifts, said the Buddha, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it, if there were anyone to receive it. So. Even Manindraji, sometimes I would have to, he, when he would visit us, I'd have to leave him home alone. And I'd come back home and, you know, I'd have food prepared for him and it'd be easy for him to he, have. But when I'd come home, I'd say, were you lonesome? You know, of course, he would say no. He would say, all the creatures are here. I'm never lonesome. And I'd say, um, were you okay eating more? Oh, yes, he would say. After I ate, I saved a little food for the ants and the roaches. And, <laughs> and I gave some food to the cat and to the dog, and it made me so happy. He would save his food, you know, a little bit to give to the creatures. And if you're sitting, were sitting at the table with him, he would take a piece of banana and he'd put it in my mouth directly, and just, to, you know, and I would say, what, you know? <laughs> and then I would realize later, oh, he's giving. Because we gave it to him, now it was his, now he could give it to me. You know? So he would put it in my mouth, and then I was like his child in a way, and in a way, I was like his mother too. But he would, <laughs> so I would take it, so it would complete his giving. I wanted him to be able to complete that. 
So the far-reaching benefit and result of practice of giving and generosity is, of course, the development of a heart and mind that can easily let go. Non-greed is the far-reaching benefit of generosity. Uteshaniya says, generosity is giving, really giving away your greed when you think of it. Every time you think of giving, it's giving not just what you're giving in kind or in energy, but your greed you're giving away. And so in, in, in time, that freedom, that feeling of, of freeness comes in to our hearts. Achan Shah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. And this letting go completely has to do maybe at the end of our life. You know, when we really just need to let go and not feel that we have to hang on to life or that we have to still do something. Or I know these are the things I think about every day at my age. I think about how I might die and facing it just in, not in a grim way, but, and how, how would I be letting go at that time? So maybe it's when we let go of all formations before the physical death, letting go into the unconditioned, which is the long-range view of the Buddha. So this is the first pillar of generosity and the one I wanted to fill out a lot. The second is sila, or living in harmony, by the careful consideration of our speech and our behavior, and having our speech and our behavior be accompanied by wholesome states of mind. That's why Steve said the other day, it's really important to watch our intention before we speak, before we act. If our intention is coming from ill will, then we don't speak or don't act, if it's coming from ill will or attachment. But if it's coming from loving-kindness, from non-attachment, from uh, a sense of wisdom, then we speak and we act. So it's deep respect for all beings when we do this. It makes not just for outer harmony, but when we look closely, we have a harmony in our, a feeling of harmony in ourselves. So harmony is not just in connection with outer people. When that's in place, of course, we feel that we have a heart of harmony and we feel at rest in ourselves. I know for some of you, if not all of you, there have been certain junctures in your practice where you felt like you could clean up your act a little bit. I know I felt that, you know, like where in speaking or acting do I need to look a little more closely at my intention before I do this? And um, sometimes it's by witnessing it in others, you know, and saying, ooh, boy, I know I can come close to that a lot of times. I better be really careful. And it's not about blaming others, but it's more about having that reflection that, gee, I could do that too. I know how, how hard it is to not do that. 
so we have the training precepts for that that we uh, chant every morning. They're not commandments. They're training. They're, I undertake the training to refrain from this, refrain from that in speech and behavior so that we, we learn to inculcate this in our hearts and in our lives so we don't forget it. I undertake the training too. If we regress or transgress, then we, we take them again and again and again. And not just with the attitude of, oh yeah, I can transgress it this time because, you know, I can make a confession and then do whatever our penance. You know, I come from a Catholic background, which I, <laughs> which I have a lot of respect for. I'm, I'm not one of those recovering Catholics. I do have a lot of respect for my background. Oh, dear, come to hear the Dharma. So, sorry to distract you. <laughs> so the Buddha had great compassion for us, and that's why he gave these trainings to us. He had great, it's out of great compassion, not out of like, you're doing something wrong, you've got to do it right. But it's compassion for the way we are in our lives. So we have the, this training um, through the precepts that we do. This can be a whole talk in itself. So I'm getting to the last part now. When we do this practice, it's a beautiful feeling of protection that we have. Because when our intention is coming from a good place, and even when it's taken wrong, and I know that's happened to every one of us. When, when we know that our intention was coming from a clean place, but somehow it was translated in another way, but we go back to our intention and we say, I know I'm protected by my intention. I know that I didn't have the intention to harm. I'm sorry that it caused harm, but I didn't have that intention. We're protected by our intention. And we can go back to that over and over again. We can look at sila as a beautiful form of renunciation. You know that when we see that it's going to harm somebody, then we refrain from speaking. When we see that our actions, even like doing things like um, having a bad attitude or saying, huh, and walking away, you know, turning away with a kind of an attitude that could still be hurtful to the other person. We see that, oh, that may not be the right thing to do right now. And we renounce doing it. You know, we may turn around and then make our face. Or... <laughs> <laughs> or whatever we do with our hand gestures, you know. But we renounce. So we don't harm the other person. So that's sila and dana, those sturdy foundations, the pillars of the dharma. And from that, as our platform, then deeper understandings, a, a way of really resting in that protection. And it makes it so easy to sit down 
then and not have our our minds and hearts in so much restlessness and thinking about regrets and feeling of guilt and planning how can we can redo something because we did it not the right way you know in the past so this doesn't in time this doesn't bother us we know our intentions are clear and that is a lot more water under the bridge in time than when our intentions haven't been clear so the next I'd like to talk about is, is bhavana. And this bhavana means cultivating what has not yet been cultivated, bringing forth what has not yet been brought forth. And this bhavana stands on uh, the two uh, pillars of, it's the third pillar, but really those two pillars are the platform for, or the soil from which bhavana can grow. So it comes in two parts. It comes in the development of samatha, or concentration, and uh, the second part is vipassana, or insight. Those are the two parts of bhavana. And mostly what we're doing here is the insight practice of uh, vipassana. In the West, we think about mental development as acquiring knowledge, learning and learning and applying that in the world. And of, of course, this is important to do that. And it's what we do as human beings, to share our knowledge, to benefit others, and to have a fulfilling life in ourselves. Um, and in the meditative world, we might think of it as acquiring or having blissful states of mind or deep states of concentration, or having this feeling of total interconnectedness. But that's only a part and parcel of the path. It's not the end goal. It could be acquiring you know, all the suttas, or many of them, and knowing them by, a lot of them by heart. But that still, all of that still doesn't give us that deep, unconditional freedom that we live with, that we can live with in the world when things are going as they go in this realm of existence that isn't perfect. The true path is about not acquiring, but about letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion. So these two practices, both are needed, both concentration, and uh, the insight knowledge uh, that comes from Vipassana. Both are needed, which lead up to the unconditioned peace, which give us the energy, the knowledge, the liberating and transformative insights that lead to Nibbana, to that unconditional release. So first, uh, just a, a little bit about the concentration practices that are done in the Buddha's teaching. This first part of bhavana, which is samatha, concentration, tranquility, calm, part of the path, but not the whole of the path. We do this when we practice metta, compassion, these two practices that we've been doing here. When we practice equanimity or sympathetic joy, 
These are all the Brahma Vihara practices. When we can stay on our breath exclusively, this is a samatha practice. In the concentration practices, this is what happens. The mental energy is repeatedly directed or focused on a particular object of our meditation, on the breath or on uh, the, the subject of metta that's either coming with the person, the phrase, or the feeling of metta, just the whole realm of metta. The concentration uh, is put there over and over and over again, repeatedly directed and focused on that particular object of meditation. Whenever the attention falls away from the object, we gently come back, but clearly come back, and we begin again, over and over again. When we're doing the samatha practices, anything else that comes into view is totally ignored. We don't pay attention to it at all, and we just come back. So in the momentum of all of that, paying attention to the chosen uh, practice or the chosen object, the energy is so focused and so strong that it creates, um, it creates a field of protection, a force field where the hindrances can't come in. So we feel that everything is very, very far away. Some of you have felt that just in your being here where you feel that um, the thoughts, they can be there, but they're just kind of floating away in the distance. Anything that happens, somebody drops something in the hall, it's, there's no reaction within of like aversion or anything. It's just heard as hearing or a sound, and it just goes by. Um, so the, what impinges upon the, the consciousness is far away and it doesn't bring any of the hindrances in. The mind is very energetic, there's no sleepiness or drowsiness, it's not distracted or dispersed so there's no restlessness, there's no doubt in the mind because it's very clear about what's going on moment to moment because of the non-distraction and the, the energy that's there. There's no attachment to anything. The mind is very fulfilled with what's happening in the present moment, very contented. And there's no aversion to anything. Uh, it, those are the five hindrances, and they don't come into that force field. So the mind feels very protected and absorbed. We feel a sense of a, absorption. There is extraordinary calm, tranquility, seclusion, from all the hindrances. There's a profound sense that the world cannot touch you. You know, you're very, very safe at that time. It's very enjoyable, of course. It's very refined mental seclusion. It was very exalted and praised by the Buddha and taught by the Buddha, these samatha practices. That practice or that feeling will only last as long as you continue to do the practice. Uh, and the momentum will continue when you stop, but depending on the strength of your practice, it may last only, you know, at, you stop in that moment, it's gone. You, you feel totally battered by the hindrances right after that, 
or it could be stay with you for a long, long time, depending on how long you've done the practice. So, of course, it can be very seductive. Um, we've seen people where when they do this practice, they're able to take the concentration and transfer it to vipassana. And, uh, but there's sometimes people cannot transfer it to vipassana. There's a hidden attachment to it because it's so seductive. Come to a vipassana practice, don't want to do vipassana, want to do samatha. And I know there are some people that come that don't want to do samatha. They're so used to it. They want to get out of it and want to do vipassana. That happens too because they see that nothing will come from, no, no total liberation will come from this practice. When the practice is, uh, this practice gives temporary freedom. It stabilizes the mind. And when it's used to transfer that stabilization and that concentration to changing objects. Now, vipassana is when you take concentration onto changing objects. When it's on changing objects, this is when the understandings, the insights come. Because when it's on changing objects and the mind is open to change, it has the ability, the capacity to then understand anicca or the impermanent nature of life doesn't have that capacity in samatha. It has that capacity in vipassana. So that's why it's so important to use that practice for vipassana, not in and of itself. So when we use it in vipassana, we open to everything that's happening. Vipassana means seeing or experiencing phenomena as it really is in its changing nature changing, unsatisfactory, impersonal nature. And I'll fill those out in a moment. So in this practice, we open to the full range of experience, not just to one thing that we're focused on. But the Buddha taught the four foundations of mindfulness, satipatthana, vipassana, bhavana. This means the four foundations of mindfulness, sensations in the body, feelings, which is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, the full range of mental experiences, including all the sense door experience at the five sense doors and mentally at the mind, all the gross and the subtle objects that can be uh, experienced. So whatever comes to the mind door, the uh, mindfulness opens up to the mindful awareness can take as an object and land on it with momentary concentration. It isn't absorbed in that experience, but it, there is momentary enough concentration to be able to have the capacity to see anicca dukkha anatta, the, the impermanent, unsatisfactory, impersonal nature of everything that can be experienced. Not just realizing it on an intellectual level, but seeing it at every sense door, including the mind, and in every area of life. So the goal of vipassana is not to achieve bliss or continuous deep calm. 
Sometimes, of course, there is the experience of great calm in vipassana, and it, it also goes. And when it goes away, sometimes we begin to see the uncontrollability, the vulnerability of life, because every moment is arising and passing away. And we th think, oh, I've lost the calm. That means I'm going backwards. But actually, in vipassana, we're, going, we're progressing in a way. We're deepening in our practice. And it isn't because of concentration on one object. It's because of concentration on changing objects. We still can achieve a level of calm and uh, feeling of tranquility. But at some point, uh, until enough equanimity is strengthened, we can't stay on anything even momentarily. We think our practice isn't going good, but in fact it is fine. It can't land on anything. It keeps slipping off because the mind is beginning to see the unsatisfactory, uh, impersonal, um, transient nature of everything. So one realizes at that time these things very, very deeply. Uh, with every single thing that's experienced, last night Steve talked about the five heaps or bundles or aggregates of seeing um, these experiences, the, the insights of anicca, dukkha, anatta in the body, sensations of the body, uh, when perception arises, it sees it even with a moment of perception. It sees it even with moments of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It sees it even with intentions in the mind. It sees it even with the knowing factor. Even consciousness itself, it's seen it. Usually that's one of the last holdouts, thinking consciousness is permanent. But it's seen experientially that consciousness, even intention, is not permanent. There's no self underneath anything. It's totally impermanent, impersonal. So we begin to see with um, deepening insight that, and and more equanimity, that this is so, this is so. Actually, equanimity is an even greater, deeper, deeper peace than calm and tranquility. Because when equanimity is there, all these things can arise, you know, this, these feelings of sensations of the body. Moments of aversion can arise, but they don't stick. Moments of unhappiness can arise, but it doesn't stick. It, everything is seen as just arising and passing away with no reactivity to it. This is an important thing to experience, even this deep equanimity at every sense door, because we get to see how it, how it feels to be, they say, to be an arahant. I'm not an arahant, so I don't know how it is to be an arahant. But the mind knows how it is to experience this equanimity at every sense door. And so we see that this is possible, to see this, to experience this. <clears throat> so this, these understandings come that there is nothing to cling to. With impermanence, we see that everything's so coming and going so fast that 
Even if we try, we can't hold on to anything. And because we see that we can't hold on to anything, we understand there's nothing to even reach for, to cling to, because it, it won't last anyway. Now, this plays out differently in our day-to-day -day life. It doesn't mean that we don't do anything anymore. It just means that there's no use to cling to anything. So we stop holding on so tightly to the past, to the future, worry about the future, to the present moment. And we see that because we can't control, really, we have influence over what we do in our life, but we don't have complete control. There's no one in the background deeming that things should be done or not done. So we see the uh, uncontrollability and the impersonal nature of everything. So this may be all so new to you, or some of it just kind of drops into your own experience, or maybe you can barely reach for that understanding. But these are things that even when I first heard them, I just said, okay, someday I may understand that. Someday I may live into that knowledge. And it does happen that you live into that knowledge. So from, from that strong momentum and increasing force of that uh, liberating moment-to-moment -moment understanding, from that right view that is so, <clears throat> so deep, and from that uh, non-reactivity to everything that's arising, there's a great momentum and force that comes from that. And it is said that just by following these, this path, moment to moment, in the way that it naturally comes about, not forcing it, it can't be willed either, and you can't be drawn into it or, or like being, be touched and think that it's going to happen. It's really an inside job. And from that momentum, it's said that the mind leaps from there because of that momentum. It leaps from there into the unconditioned. And this is the true trajectory of the Buddha's teaching. This word unconditioned is used synonymously with the word nibbana or nirvana, the goal of the holy life. It's not often talked about and it's, it's such a sad thing that it isn't, because in our time, it was talked about all the time, but all of a sudden, you know, don't hear very much about it. So we want to bring it out and put it out there. Nibbana means the extinguishing of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, the cooling out and distinguishing of them. When a heart is completely free, completely, um, all the obscurations are all uprooted, greed, hatred, and delusion. There's no force or tendency of that in the mind. It happens gradually, but it happens. It's an ineffable experience because it is really a non-experience. It's like nothing, literally, is experienced, but it can't be known in the moment of that experience, non-experience. 
It's a cessation of all conditioned experience because it is the unconditioned. It's beyond words or description. It's beyond imagination, beyond formations that we know about because it's just ineffable. It's beyond knowing. It's beyond consciousness. But it's possible. So I want to give you the Buddha's words about that. This is from the Udana, one of the uh, uh, volumes of the precious words of the Buddha. There is that sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no wind. There no sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, no sphere of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This fear I call neither a coming nor a going, nor a staying still, neither dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no foundation, no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. It's something that we can't imagine. There is, O monks, an unborn, an unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here, visible from that which is born, made, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unmade, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become made, compounded. So this is something beyond our knowing, beyond consciousness. I will teach you the far shore, said the Buddha, the subtle, the difficult to see, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving and clinging, the amazing, the unailing Nibbana, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So this is the realization of our highest potential as human beings, the sure heart's release. This realization, this potential exists for every man or woman, young or old, from any culture. No matter how old you are or you think you've begun at a later age, there are many stories of women and men who began at later age and the unconditioned is possible. If you open to the possibility, your life will incline in that direction. Even if it's not comprehensible now, your life will incline to the end of suffering. So it's possible to stay open to it. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.